So it was back in March of 2014 that the actress Gwyneth Paltrow and singer Chris Martin of Coldplay made history when on her website, Goop, they would consciously uncouple before the world. Now the internet erupted, right? What in the world is conscious uncoupling? You know, to so many, they were, they were roundly mocked for the way in which they sort of brought in the eyes of many this sort of new age nonsense to divorce that only the Hollywood elite could possibly bring. And yet, despite all the backlash that ensued, that term has actually stuck, this expression of conscious uncoupling. And it's actually based on the the work of a psychotherapist named Catherine Woodard Thomas. And in her book, Conscious Uncoupling, Five Steps to Living Happily Ever After, actually, I think it's happily even after, she encouraged us to think about separation as opportunity. Not personal failure, but separation is opportunity. She actually posits a way in which we can think about divorce in a positive way by focusing on the idea of completing the relationship, in her words, not ending the relationship. She says that not all marriages are in fact meant to last, and both parties deserve to leave the marriage whole and intact. The whole idea of a lifelong union, she says, well, that's unrealistic. And to quote her, she, she says, we have to remember that happily even after was a myth created about 400 years ago when lifespan was less than 40 and people were not mobile and had very few choices in life. I think that's a rather reductionistic and not entirely accurate representation of the last 400 years, but nonetheless, she says, I do think that people are ready for new alternatives. New alternatives, that's what she says we're ready for. Well, I wonder what you think this morning. What do you think about what she's written? You know, here in the U.S., you know, we live in a nation where roughly 50% of marriages end in divorce. About one divorce every 13 seconds. Which means there are nine divorces and the time it takes an average couple to say their wedding vows. There are more than 550 divorces during the typical romantic comedy. There are almost 1,400 divorces during the average wedding reception. So should we view divorce as opportunity? To quote Catherine Woodward Thomas, right? Is it the first step toward fulfilling the better you? If not, how should we think about divorce, especially as Christians this morning? How should we think about divorce? Well, friends, to help us think about these things, I want us to turn again in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be verses uh, 1 to 12 this morning of Mark chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to open there. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we actually have the sermon text printed for you in those worship guides. You should be able to find it, I think, on page 10 of that guide. Now, if you're visiting with us, we're in the section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is marching with the disciples toward Jerusalem. And they have, the disciples declare Jesus as the Messiah, and they fully expect Jesus to land in Jerusalem, to inaugurate his kingdom, and they're expecting a political and military dynasty, and they're fully expecting as his inner 12, right, the elite, that they're going to have wonderful positions, right, in this new administration, 
But Jesus understands that his kingdom is going to first come through a cross, right? Before it ever comes in the form of a crown. And he knows that the disciples are not prepared. He knows they're not ready. And so Jesus, in this section, as they march toward Jerusalem, he's trying to reframe the whole notion of his discipleship, or rather of his Messiahship. So what is Jesus as the Messiah? What does that mean for the disciples, right, for their discipleship? What does it mean for the disciples to follow him? And that's really what chapters really 8 through 10 are all about. And so we pick up here in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We read, and he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? Well, they said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this law. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she marries her husband, rather, and if she divorces her husband and she marries another, she commits adultery. All right, so we're going to stop there, and you might be tempted to think that this quick transition right, into this topic of marriage and divorce, well, it may, it may appear rather haphazard, rather random at this point in Mark's gospel, but it's actually no accident, because if we think about the context of, of where this discussion falls, right, the disciples thus far, they have been consumed with lives of self-interest and with status. And Jesus has been warning them about the way in which they're consumed by such things. He's instead been calling them to deny themselves, right? To take up their cross and to follow him. Now, that doesn't mean that marriage is all just cross-bearing drudgery, right? That's not what I'm saying. But there is a real sense in which marriage, unlike any other relationship, teaches one what it means to die to self, to die to self-interest, self-promotion, self-gratification, the very things that Jesus has been at pains to teach his disciples, that's in part what the school of marriage can uniquely teach. So while the Pharisees are coming to Jesus with a question about divorce, he's going to turn it and talk to them about marriage. Whereas they want to talk about loopholes and license, Jesus instead wants to talk about a lifestyle of loyalty, of longevity. And I think the main point of Jesus' teaching is simply this. Christian discipleship, 
which is what this whole section, right, 8 to 10 is about, Christian discipleship is displayed in marriages that celebrate God's design, not our desires. Christian discipleship is displayed in marriages that celebrate God's design, not our desires. And I want us to look at the text really in two parts. First, I want us to think about the difficulty of marriage. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I get that, okay. Difficulty of marriage. And then second, the design of marriage. So just those two parts. The difficulty of marriage, that'll be verses 1 to 5. And then the design of marriage will be verses 6 to 12. And my prayer is that as we think about this text together, we're going to be more committed to God's purposes than we're going to be led by our fleeting passions and all of our own personal preferences. All right, so first, the difficulty of marriage. The difficulty of marriage. Again, this is really verses 1 through 5. Now, the scene opens, and once again, Jesus and the disciples, they're on the road. They've left now the home base, Jesus' home base up there in Capernaum, well in the north. And they're taking this rather circuitous route toward Jerusalem. They're heading south, but going around and across the Jordan. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus is now far from his Galilean homeland, despite the fact that he's far we still read that the crowds are, are literally flocking to him, right? They're gathering around him, which just speaks of, of how popular Jesus had become over the three years of his own ministry. And we read what again, verse 1, as was his custom, he taught them. He taught them. Again, just highlighting, Jesus was not first a healer, not first an entertainer, he was not a prognosticator, he was not a political leader, he was a, a teacher. That's what Jesus came to do, fundamentally to teach. We've seen it throughout Mark's gospel. And friend, that's another good reminder for you, for all of us, that what we most need right now in this season is to hear the word of God. We've got to hear the word of God. So just to ask yourself, this past week, have you spent more time reading and watching election news than reading your Bibles? Have you spent more time perhaps poring over vote tallies? More time perhaps thinking about pending litigation and state to state? Have you spent more time reading and debating about whether or not it's proper to call Biden president-elect or reading the word of God from the one who will never stand for re-election? All of us, right, myself included, we need to be discipled, discipled more in this word than we need to be discipled in the GSA or how the Electoral College works or exactly when they vote. That's not unimportant, but it's not as important as this word. We need this word more than we need to know what the latest COVID numbers are or the latest guidance on masks. Jesus is marching here toward his own crucifixion. And he's not concerning the disciples with the nuances of capital punishment in Roman law. He's not talking about all the particularities of divorce in Jewish law. He's not focused on those things. He's actually focused on the word of the lawgiver himself. And he's giving that word out. 
Friends, if that was true for Jesus' disciples, if that's what they most needed in their moment, it's what we most need in our moment. Now, it's at this point that the discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees, well, that, that picks up right here. You know, it's interesting. One of the things you read through Mark, as is often the case, we actually don't get a lot of the particulars of Jesus' teaching. We only start to really hear about it when the Q&A picks up. And we think, you know, Mark got most of his, his particular information, right, his eyewitness testimony from Peter. And it's almost like Peter went to class and slept through the lecture. And then all of a sudden, a debate heats up near the end of class, and he wakes up. He's like, all right, what's going on? It's kind of the sense we get here. But it's not an innocent question that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. Right? We read they came to, quote, test him, to test him. Now, only twice have we read this word thus far in, in Mark. We saw it last back in Mark chapter 8, 11, when the Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus in order to test him. And before that, it was back in chapter 1, verse 12, when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, same Greek word though, tested by Satan. And just as Satan did there in the wilderness, how would he test in part? But he would test Jesus by twisting God's word. And actually in much the same way, we're going to see how the Pharisees are testing Jesus by also twisting God's word. And in that way, Mark, I think, is subtly here. He's helping us see how the Pharisees are really just in league with Satan. They're in league with Satan. Right Back in 8.11, they tried to get Jesus to stumble. They couldn't get him to stumble. So they've been perhaps back in Jerusalem. They've been plotting. And it's back there that a plan forms. And they've come here. And they're going to hatch their own plot. So they ask Jesus, right, with a smile that perhaps hardly conceals the malice in their voice. And they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now to be clear... The Pharisees did not pose this question because they wanted marital advice. It's not why they came to Jesus. No, they're putting Jesus here on the stand, so to speak. In front of all the crowds, they've carefully crafted this question, hoping that Jesus is going to hang himself with the answer. Right? They're trying to trap him with this question because Jesus is in Herod's territory. That's where we find him now. And recall it was Herodias, Herod's wife, who was previously married to Herod's brother Philip, but Herodias would rather have been queen, and King Herod was happy to make her queen, and so what happened, Herodias divorced Philip, Herod's wife, and married Herod. And recall it was back in Mark 6 that John the Baptist was objecting to this divorce and remarriage. And that drew the ire of Herodias, right? She was outraged, she was incensed, and it led to John the Baptist's own beheading. So it was John speaking specifically about the nature of marriage and divorce that got him beheaded, and here is Jesus back in that same territory, and they think, oh, we know how to get him. The same way that John the Baptist himself was hung. And they set the trap. Again, they're not seeking instruction, they're certainly not looking for advice. They want to entrap him. But you know the great thing about Jesus? He can spot a trap a mile off. 
and he springs his own. He puts a question back to them, verse 3. And he says, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees, all too eager, right, all too eager to answer correctly before the crowds, they dive in and they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, right there, that we may not know what they're referencing directly, but they're actually referencing Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. And the very first verse of Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4 reads, and I'm reading from the CSB here, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now it's going to go on to talk about what happens if she remarries and then that second husband divorces her and it's going to say that she actually can't go back and can't remarry the first husband. And those details are somewhat opaque. It's sometimes hard to gather, okay, what's exactly being, being gotten at there? It's evident that Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was actually given in order to discourage kind of hasty divorces. It was actually given in order to safeguard and to protect the rights of women who in such a culture could be abused by sort of a liberal divorce culture where they would have a hard time remarrying, a hard time being cared for, being provided for. So Deuteronomy 24, in context, it didn't encourage divorce, it didn't demand divorce, but it did seek to regulate it from further abuse. And now here's where just a little bit of background is more helpful. So I know we're not all lawyers. We're certainly not lawyers in in sort of Jewish marital law, but just let's go to law school for a minute. Pretend you're Perry Mason. We're going to figure this out, okay? In Jesus' day, divorce all hinged on the understanding from Deuteronomy 24.1 of what that expression, something indecent. What does that mean, something indecent? And there are really two schools of thought within the lawyers of Jesus' day. The first school of thought said, hey, listen, that word indecent, well, that has sexual connotations. So one school of thought was that divorce was proper only when you had significant sexual sin in the relationship. If that was there, some sexual impropriety, then divorce was permissible. But there was another school of thought within the law that focused not on the indecent, but on the something indecent. And they would recategorize something really as anything. And so they thus opened the doors wide to divorce, and they had something much more like a no-fault divorce policy, much of which we would know today. Effectively, they said you could divorce for any reason, including a wife burning her husband's meal. And I'm not making that up. That's literally in the Mishnah and a collection of Jewish writings, which is why many wives ordered takeout. It's a bad joke. Colby, Colby told me to say that. That's not true either. I don't know if Colby's here. It's not true. No, but um, probably not good to joke about divorce. But um, in all seriousness, uh, Jews, all Jews recognized that divorce was legal. They did just debate the grounds of it. And here's the thing. Notice the question Jesus put back to the Pharisees that they were all so eager to proudly answer. He said, what did Moses command you? Now, every Jew knew that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible. 
So when it comes to what Moses commanded, well, the Pharisees could have quoted from Genesis 1, right, 26 to 28, like we read earlier this morning. They could have quoted from Genesis 2, 15 to 25. That would have been a natural place to go. They could have quoted Genesis 5, 1 to 2, which highlights some of the same things. They could have even said, well, you know, Moses didn't exactly write this, but Malachi 2, right? There's another text we could turn to. They could have turned to a host of texts, but they don't. They go right to Deuteronomy 24. But Deuteronomy 24 doesn't command divorce. Deuteronomy 24 permits divorce. And it permits it as a concession for the people's, what what does Jesus say, verse five, for the people's hardness of heart, right? The people's hardness of heart. But actually it doesn't say that really, does it? Jesus says in verse five, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this law. And right there, Jesus is lumping the Pharisees here in with disobedient Israel of the past, right? Because they've treated as a command what God gave them as a concession. They took a verse as that was given as a concession, so in such circumstances, one may divorce, and they made that concession God's intention. You must divorce, They took a text that was meant to limit the abuse of divorce and they turned it into a license to divorce for any reason. And in doing so, they were showing just how rebellious and hard-hearted they were, just like disbelieving Israel, which is why he says, you're. He's pointing at them. They twisted again what was given as a concession, and they made it about God's intention, which is just a reminder that someone can quote the Bible to you and it does not mean they know and understand what it says. Now what this reveals about the Pharisees is that for the Pharisees, marriage to them was little more than a piece of paper. That's really what it was. It was little more than a piece of paper. It wasn't any kind of sacred covenant. It was a disposable contract, right? Write a certificate of divorce, send her away. Their attitude reminds us of a person who, who's just been given a loan, right? And their first question is, hey, so on what conditions can I default from this? Or it's like someone who's engaged. And this person says, yeah, I'm really committed to marriage. And yet they're spending hours with their attorney drafting a prenup. And they never meet a pastor to think about premarital. The Pharisees were all about looking for legal loopholes. Whereas Jesus is trying to teach them about what is truly lasting. And in this sense, marriage in Jesus' day, and I think marriage in our own day, there's a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. I think this gets to the, that issue of the difficulty of marriage. The difficulty of marriage. Not just that marriage is hard. I mean, of course it is that. But when it comes to marriage, the way in which we frame the whole conversation as the, as the Pharisees have, have largely framed it in their own discussions, we frame it all about what? Compatibility, right? That comes first, not commitment. We frame it about what we get out of it, not what we're to give to it. We make it about our happiness, not about another's holiness. We make it about fulfillment, not what it means to be faithful. That's how we talk about marriage. So the classic, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, I know it's kind of ancient these days, but you remember the subtitle of that book, 
a practical guide for getting what you want in your relationships. For many, that's all marriage has been reduced to, right? Getting what you want. And if you can't get what you want, you what? You get out. So indeed, many marriage writers today say you, in fact, have a moral obligation to divorce your spouse if your spouse isn't about promoting your own growth and your own development. That's language, a moral obligation. I'm just using a quote from a book. But recognize, once we do that, all we've done is turn marriage into a respectable form of selfishness. That's all we've done. For when we marry to meet our own needs, that's all marriage becomes, right? Pretty looking masks for our own selfishness. And that's not just a secular problem, right? That's not just a problem out there in the world. You know, and Christian counselors and, and Christian authors can, I think, not intentionally, but nonetheless subtly, well, they undermine and they can trivialize and even redefine marriage by talking about marriage all about fulfillment and all about felt needs. So one Christian book is titled, How to Achieve a Happy and Fulfilling Relationship. And that seems harmless enough, right? Because who walks into marriage and says, you know, I want to be miserable and neglected. Sign me up. No, we don't walk into marriage like that. We all want happy. We want fulfilling relationships. But the implication in that title is that happiness and fulfillment is what is primary. It's what is primary, that our happiness and fulfillment is in fact why God gave us marriage. It's what we're principally supposed to experience in marriage. It's in fact the very purpose of marriage. That's what we begin to think. And yet we're reminded in Proverbs, right, there is a way that seems right to a man in his own eyes, but what it leads to death. Because if your ultimate goal is personal happiness, be prepared to be disappointed in marriage. It doesn't take long to figure that out. If your ultimate goal is personal happiness in marriage, you're going to have a hard time seeing how Jesus is any help to you. Marriage, as we'll see in a moment, has a lot more to do with what God is doing in and through us than what I desire for me. Because recognize it's a, very, it's a very short step, a very short step between me loving you and between me loving me and me needing you. Very short step between me loving you and me really loving me and me needing you. And that's what we can turn marriage into. So in Christian discipleship, when we talk about following Jesus generally, like we have categories, yeah, we bear our crosses. We thought about that in chapter, chapter eight. We, we understand personal sacrifice. But so often when Christians talk about marriage, we talk about, well, how do we communicate better? How do we bear the burden of responsibilities more equitably, more fairly? How do we enjoy better intimacy? And that's what our marital conversations surround. And some of that, we almost talk about marriage like it's a discipleship-free zone, like where the cross doesn't have any bearing in marriage. And yet, as far as we can tell, you know, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, they had a marriage with excellent communication. They had wonderful shared values. They each understood one another perfectly. 
And yet, they both died terrible deaths under the judgment of God. The difficulty with marriage is that many of us demand of it what it was not created to give. So we think marriage is God's provision to meet our needs, and we don't realize God actually has much bigger purposes in the world than meeting our own individual needs. We expect marriage to solve the problem of love and of loneliness. Right? Isn't that why God gave Eve to Adam, right? He was lonely, so he got, he got a partner. That's what we think. And then we can't figure out why when we're in marriage, why are we so lonely? Why I'm actually lonelier in marriage than I was outside of marriage. And it's in part because we're asking our marriages to bear what they were never meant to bear. So I've had a few motorcycle issues recently. And so I've gone back to wearing my thick, heavy leather jacket, lest I bang myself up any further. One of the things that when all the moves for the last couple of years, the, the hanger that jacket came with, I don't know, it got lost somewhere. You know, you try to put that heavy, thick jacket on a wire hanger, and the thing just collapses, the hanger collapses. You put it on a plastic hanger, which I've done plenty of time, and then gone back in the closet to get the jacket, and the jacket's on the ground because the plastic snaps. I've got wood hangers that last for a little while, but they too eventually crack because the hanger was never meant to bear the weight. Well, friends, in just the same way, so many of us come into marriage and we expect it to bear a weight it wasn't meant to bear. And when it begins to snap, what do we assume? Well, the problem's there, right? The problem's with the spouse. I mean, that's just Adam. He looks at Eve, right? She made me do it, whatever. We always look to the other person. We never assume it's here. We assume, if we're not careful, that we would be happier, more fulfilled elsewhere. We assume that in leaving our marriages, we'll have a better shot at finding a faithful and, and happy and fulfilling marriage, right? Someone who knows me, someone who gets me, someone who understands me, someone who truly loves me. That's what we'll start telling ourselves. And the Bible knows what this is. The Bible even has a word for this. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. It's what John was talking about in the ABF this morning, right? When we make gods out of gifts. And then in our hardness of heart, to get what we want, we will twist God's word and make it say what we want it to say. And we justify ourselves, which is what the Pharisees have done. Friend, I wonder if in any way some of that might describe where you are. Have you perhaps been heaping your life's happiness, your life's fulfillment, and your life's joy? Have you been heaping all of those expectations upon the shoulder of a fellow sinner who cannot possibly bear that load? Does that leave you feeling defeated, leaving you to feel like you just want to give up and run? Well, if that's you, what are you to do? I, part of what Jesus is saying and the Bible is saying to you is actually you need to repent. I mean, as hard as that sounds, that's the first thing you've got to do. You've got to repent and recognize you're demanding of marriage and of another sinner what they were never meant to give you, what they cannot themselves give you and weren't intended to give you. And it means you've got to turn and embrace God's design. You've got to look to his design instead. 
And that really brings us to our second point, verses 6 through 12, the design of marriage. We've seen something of the difficulty. Let's look at the design of marriage. Because again, the Pharisees, while they want to talk about divorce, I love how Jesus flips it and says, no, 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 I know you want to have that conversation. We're going to have a different one. We're going to talk about marriage. That's actually a lot more important. And they want to talk about the ways they can get out of marriage where he's going to want them to think about what can be won when they hang in marriage. Now, they've made Deuteronomy 24 the controlling text. But the divine intention for marriage cannot be discerned in a text about divorce. Right? They're looking at the wrong text. I mean, that would be like learning to fly a plane by reading first about how you crash it. That would be like learning financial stewardship by reading first and studying first and becoming an expert on bankruptcy law. That would be like learning honesty by being taught first how to lie. It would be like studying the art of war by becoming a master at retreat. So in verses 6 to 12, Jesus takes them to the sections of Moses that they had muzzled, that they weren't discussing, right back to Genesis 1 and 2, right what Christian read for us so well earlier this morning. And whenever Jesus and Paul, whenever they are confronted with a question about marriage, where do they always go? Whether it's Matthew 5, Matthew 19 here, whether it's Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, where do they turn? They turn to Genesis 1 and 2. They turn to creation, right? Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, right? The Bible always goes back to creation. It goes back to God's original design. When the Bible wants to talk about roles, and discuss roles and relationships in marriage and in the church when it wants to think about headship and authority and submission, right? 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 3, where do they go? They go back to these texts, God's original design, when everything was still good and when we hadn't made a mess of it all. I think there's two things in particular that Jesus is teaching us about God's design for marriage. The first is that it's intimate, and the second is that it's, it's inviolable. It's inviolable. So it's intimate and inviolable. So first intimate, verse 6, God made them what? First says God made them male and female. And he's just quoting right there from Genesis 1.27. So notice right there, Jesus is not teaching them anything new, anything they don't, in theory, already know, but some things we may need to hear. In that, God made them male and female Notice marriage is established with two. Marriage is established with two. Not with three, not with four, not with more. So polygamy was never part of God's design, never condoned in Scripture, but lamented in Scripture. Right? Whenever you find it, whether or not it's with Abraham, with David, with Solomon, polygamy brings division, it brings despair, it brings death. It's a good thing to keep in mind because even in our own nation today, there's a growing chorus of voices, right? After Obergefell, a growing chorus of voices to make polygamy legal in the U.S., right? Because if marriage is just about two consenting adults, why can't we open it up to three, four, or more? But notice it doesn't just begin with two. It begins with two people. 
We can't marry our pets. And yes, there's a growing move to make that legal as well. I don't know what the wedding pictures would look like, right? But nonetheless, it's there. I'm not kidding. It begins also, though, male and female. Notice that male and female. Like it or not, God created us as gendered individuals. And in the Bible, marriage is exclusively the union of one man and one woman. And this is God's design. And over and over again, that's what we read. There's simply not a hint, not a suggestion anywhere in Scripture that God ordained marriage to be anything other than a monogamous heterosexual union, one man and one woman for life. Nothing in the Bible that remotely affirms same-sex unions. Right? Culture can declare it to be so. The courts can recognize it to be so. But God doesn't. He doesn't see that. Now, I know that can be hard to hear, and some of you in here will wrestle with same-sex attraction. I'm not shocked by that. None of us should be shocked by that in the fallen world. We may wrestle with such things, but the Creator knows what's best. He knows what's best. He designed marriage, and he designed marriage to work in a particular way. And when we think we can swap out this for that, when we make marriage plastic and malleable and we just think it's interchangeable, well, we not only undermine it, we begin to destroy it and it breaks down because we're attempting to make something work not as God intended. And that intimacy is meant to be seen in how a man leaves, the text says, his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, verses 8 and 9, and the two become one flesh. Again, Jesus, Jesus there, just quoting Genesis 2, verse 24. It's this mystery of how two become a coupled one. Their new relationship takes priority over parents, which given the high esteem, the Jews were meant to hold their parents. That's a remarkable statement. It takes priority over parents and over their own personal preferences. It takes priority over both. Right? That's part of what we see when Paul talks about the body of the husband and the body of the wife, they do not own them. They give them to the other, to the desire and will of the other, 1 Corinthians 7. Or Ephesians 5, in the way in which husband and wife are to care for one another. Right, so to sum up, God's clear design in marriage is heterosexual, lifelong, monogamous union between a husband and a wife. Marriage is not simply a contract between two families. It's not a civil contract, just a civil contract in that sense that can be dissolved at will. Right? Marriage is put forth as a sacred covenant. Nor is marrying a man, right, sorry, nor is, a, nor is marriage a situation where a man sort of takes his wife in as his property. No, this is, it's put forward more as a partnership. Right? She's not his property. They're partners, compliments, companions in the work God has set them out to do. Now that speaks all to the kind of intimacy that's God's design for marriage, but it's also inviolable. And then it sense, it's not to be broken. It's not to be broken, right? Verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And here Jesus isn't quoting Moses. Jesus is not, here, not even simply like deducing and making conclusions. Jesus is actually stating authoritatively that 
What God has joined together, let not man separate. He's declaring God's will because he is the son of God. Like strong Christology right there. Jesus, the son of God, declaring God's will. Not having to quote, this is what so-and-so said. No, he's declaring it, stating it to be the case. He's not just a teacher. He is the son of God. Jesus is saying marriage is a sacred union, right? It is a covenant that has been consecrated by God, which means, yeah, we're not just to tear it up. We're not to treat it casually. We're not to walk away from it. While divorce may be lawful, that doesn't mean we should see it as desirable. It's given again as a concession, not God's intention. While he'll permit it in certain cases, that doesn't mean it was part of his good creation purposes. And this is what the Pharisees, this is what they won't see, this is what they can't see. It's often, right, this teaching here that we struggle to see. All too often we're happy to divide what God calls us to keep unified. You know, in the Judaism of Jesus' day, a husband was largely lord of the relationship. He controlled it and the husband could end it at will. But here Jesus is looking before all his disciples And he's saying, yeah, guys, you're not the Lord of your marriage. God is the Lord of your marriage. And you're not to dissolve it at will, but you are to preserve it at all costs. That's because divorce is always a tragedy. It's never a victory, never to be celebrated, but rather lamented. And I know that can be hard It's not lost to me. In a room this size, there are going to be numerous, many, who themselves are divorced. And that can come, right? Divorce with feelings of deep guilt and shame and loss. And I don't say all of this to heap additional burdens on you. I'm not trying to shackle you with guilt and burden you this morning with more regrets to raise doubts as to whether guilty parties can be pardoned whether failed spouses can be forgiven because the wonderful news in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the answer to those questions can failed spouses be forgiven yes absolutely yes absolutely so nobody whoever comes genuinely before God and begs to be forgiven no one is ever turned away from God ever turned away from him. And that's because Jesus, even now, is modeling what it's going to be like to willingly go to a cross and to bear the sins of those who are themselves rebellious. Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus who had no sin. The one who would take upon the sins of all of those who would ever repent of their sins and believe upon him. He took those sins on his body to the cross and he bore them there. And then he died. And in his death, he buried that sin. He did away with that sin forever. It's what we're going to get to celebrate in baptisms, right? Death to sin. What a new life in Christ. Freedom in Christ. Regardless of their past, they, you, can be forgiven in Christ. You can be truly free. The reality is, we're all spiritual adulterers. That's one of the things the Bible makes really clear. Read through the Old Testament, you even get into James. We are all spiritual adulterers. You may think you're really faithful in your marriage, but not in the one that most matters, actually. Not the one to God. You have been unfaithful to him plenty of times, and he knows that. And yet, 
he saves us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? There is no condemnation, we read, and we need to hear those verses. Some of you dealing with guilt and shame and loss, you need to hear in Christ no condemnation. Now, this teaching of Jesus' on divorce would have shocked those who were listening. Even the most conservative school would have assumed for sexual immorality, divorce was required. And he's saying, nope. And we know it shocked them because when the disciples go back to the privacy of the house, notice they don't want to look like fools. They don't ask Jesus more questions in front of the crowds. They're like, we know what happens to the Pharisees every time they try this game. We'll wait to get back into the privacy of the house. And what do they do? They're like, no, Jesus, really? I mean, did you, do you really mean no divorce? Given the preponderance of divorce, it's quite possible one of the 12 themselves was divorced. And Jesus says to them, verse 11, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So if Jesus' first words were shocking, those words right there, those were jaw-dropping. They would have had no category for these words. We know that in part because in the parallel account in Matthew 19, what do the disciples say? They just blurt out, well, better not to get married. That's their respond to Jesus' teaching. So high is Jesus raising the bar in marriage. Now, if you're familiar with the accounts in Matthew, like Matthew 5 or Matthew 19, there Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, and then he adds this clause, except for sexual immorality. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. So Matthew includes that exception clause, divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. Mark omits that, except for sexual immorality. Probably because here, Jesus, the question's not whether or not sexual immorality is legitimate grounds for divorce. Every Jew understood that it was. The question the Pharisees are really posing is, yeah, is no-fault divorce, Jesus, is divorce for any reason, is that really okay? That's what they're trying to hang him on. So Jesus doesn't address that question directly. But recognize in verses 11 to 12, What's being introduced is actually no new teaching from 5 to 10. He's just working through some of the implications of all that teaching. And so part of what Jesus is teaching in verses 11 to 12 is that whoever divorces his wife, and implied in that is for an unbiblical reason, right? whoever divorces his wife without any biblical warrant and marries another woman, well, that man commits adultery. And he's committed adultery, interestingly, against his original wife, which would have shocked them because women didn't have such rights. So if a man committed adultery, he didn't commit it against his wife, he committed it against the wife of the husband that he slept with. Right, so if he slept with another wife, the adultery wasn't against his original wife, it was actually against the husband of the other woman he slept with. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's a problem too, but no, the adultery is actually first against her against God first, but I mean, but against her. You're still in God's eyes married to her. That's why it says he's committed adultery against his wife. And then fascinating, the flip is also true. It also is the case that if the woman leaves and marries another, she too commits, implied for an unbiblical reason, she too commits adultery against her original husband. And this would have thrown some of them in Jewish culture for a bit of a loop because it was actually exceedingly rare in Jewish culture for women to initiate divorce. Only a few known cases, like Herodias would be one case, but it was really rare. 
Now, of course, if, sadly, in the history of the world, if you've got enough money, you've got enough power, you can bend the courts to your will. We've seen that. Herodias could do that. But in Gentile societies, it was more common for women to be able to initiate divorce. And so it's not surprising that Mark's gospel, which was written to a Gentile audience, would have included this teaching of Jesus, which most of the other synoptics don't mention, because he's got this Gentile audience in mind. So not only was Jesus teaching that a kind of no-fault divorce policy was unbiblical, he's actually saying it made them adulterers. And in the Old Testament law, the punishment for adultery was death. Again, he is radically raising the bar when it comes to marriage. Now, this isn't the Bible's teaching only on divorce. And one of the hard things about the sermon is there are a million ways one could go, and there are a million questions a number of you are going to have. So just a few things I want to note, because it's not the Bible's only teaching on divorce. You may be wondering, are there other grounds for divorce apart from sexual immorality? Well, on that, Christians will differ. Some Christians even differ on whether or not sexual immorality itself is a ground. But just if you want to know the, the teaching, the understanding of, of your elders, uh, the elders are of the opinion that divorce is permitted for adultery, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and it's, it's permitted for the abandonment of an unbeliever. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 7. So for adultery and for abandonment of an unbeliever, an unbelieving spouse, divorce is permissible. doesn't say it's what you ought to do. It says what you can do. That's what's called, like in the history of Protestantism, that's the kind of dominant view. It's the Erasmian view uh, of marriage. By extension, though, your elders would also say, and we would likely include things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, because that kind of abuse, when it rises to particular levels, that creates a kind of forced abandonment in the relationship. Now, working through those particular questions about divorce, particular situations in a couple's married life, that is exceedingly difficult. And the Bible gives us principles. The Bible does not lay out case law. And no two situations are alike which is why if you are ever in a situation where you have questions, you have concerns, either things happening in your own marriage or in the marriage of someone you love and you want counsel, this is where the elders are imploring you, come talk to us. Meet with us. Let us help you think through it. Let us help you work through that. But we miss Jesus' point if all we spend our time doing is focusing on the exceptions because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus wants us to focus on the sacredness, the beauty, the inviolability of marriage. Because when it comes to marriage, when it comes to marriage, the key question is not what God permits, but what he commands of us and intends for us. That's the key question. So the question is whether or not we this morning who are here and who are Christians, will we hear this call of Jesus's upon our life? Will we walk faithfully as disciples by living faithfully in our own marriages? Will we seek God's will, genuinely, truly, or just look for a way out? Right? Will we look for loopholes? Will we run or will we try to stick it in? Some of us listening right now, we, it's possible. If you're listening, you might be contemplating divorce. You might have people around you encouraging you even to think about divorce in your workplace. And part of, I think, Jesus' message here is it's stop. 
and ask yourself, is that really what God wants of you? Is that what God's word says is wise for you? Divorce was never part of God's design. The damages are great. Jesus understood the stability of the family and of society and how that depended upon marriage. History has borne that out. He knew, even more importantly, Jesus did, that the witness of the gospel would be hindered when we don't honor our own marriages. To overthrow this basic design leads to moral and spiritual, psychological, social chaos in all realms. Marriage is hard work. You know, sometimes we go in expecting it to be easy. But friend, nothing in life that is worth anything, nothing in life that really matters is ever easy. It's never easy. So if you're pondering marriage, let's say you're a a young adult here and you're thinking about marriage. Be careful. Don't confuse lust with love. Don't assume marriage is God's solution to your loneliness or it's God's solution to your longing. Only God, we see in the gospel, can meet that need. So it's why as you, as you sort of ruminate, as you reflect on marriage, I love the solemn language of the Book of Common Prayer, which seems odd to us because we've so misunderstood and sort of lost marriage. But it says we should not enter into, right? We don't just stroll into marriage unadvisedly or lightly or in the original version, wantonly, in the sense of our carnal lusts. But no, but we walk into it, we enter into it reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, it says. Now, if you are married, if you are married, rather, if you're married, your marriage may not be, this morning, what you dreamed. And just to let you in on a little secret, no one's marriage ever is. But when we ask what God wants of us, we're actually asking what's best for us. The lie we tell ourselves is that we'll be happier, we'll be more fulfilled with another. But friend, exchanging one sinner for another sinner, that's actually not progress. That's not moving forward. That's not improvement. If that was improvement, then statistics would show that second marriages have a much greater success of working. And they don't. They actually have a worse success. They have a lower success. Divorce is rarely the answer. The gospel always is the answer. Every marriage will hit a season where the couple is thinking to themselves, are we really going to make it? And they may say it, they may just think it, every marriage hits it. Our own marriage, my wife and I, we've hit those moments Alone, outside of Christ, it's awfully hard, near impossible. I honestly don't know how folks do it. But by the grace of God in the gospel, together and with one another, right? this is what we can do. This is what we're called to do. So members of UBC, the question for us, I think, is will we commit to remaining faithful in our marriages? Because it's, it's not just here at the church but it's actually in the privacy and the complexity and in all the mess and mud of our marriages where the gospel is at stake. So will you prize them? Will you pray for them? Will you treasure them? Will you invest in them? Not by pouring all your hopes into them, but by honoring them and protecting them as God would call you to do. 
forts the intimacy, the inviolability of marriage and of that bond, that's what's intended by God. That's what Jesus is helping us to see, which is hard because we've traded that expression till death do us part. I don't know why we bother to say that in weddings anymore. It's like till our desires do us part, right? We don't really mean it. And marriages therefore falter, right? With all the fickleness, with all the fleeting passions, right? They, they just go by the way. And would it be so that conscious uncoupling would be as easy as it was presented to be? Friends, we need to jettison any Orwellian notions, right? That divorce is the completion of a relationship. That divorce, just to quote another, is a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It is a personal triumph. Following Christ requires wholesale commitment to Christ, which means our discipleship is to be displayed in marriages that celebrate God's design and not our desires. So friend, will that describe you? And will that mark us as a congregation? Let's pray. God, we pray and we pray and we're grateful for the clarity of Jesus. That he doesn't beat around the bush. That when he comes to matters as important, as significant as marriage, he speaks plainly and lovingly. Even when he speaks at times words that cut against us. God, we give you praise for the kindness, the loving kindness of our Savior who would speak your words to us in such clear and also compassionate ways. And God, we pray that we would continue to take to heart that which we must as part of your design. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.